Welcome to Chandler United Methodist Church as we worship together online. This is Easter, the Sunday we celebrate God's declaration of life over death. I recently found myself tromping through a wrecking yard in search of a part to repair a 1995 Dodge Dakota that we use for trips to the dump. And speaking of death, it's fascinating to me to look at wrecked cars and think about the people who once owned them. At one time, each of those vehicles was new, the shining pride of someone. And as I mentioned, it's more than a little sad as I wonder about lives ended in those cars or changed radically by those cars. One of the cars which I saw was a blue Buick LeSabre from the mid-80s. It sparked my memory. So as I continued my search for the right part, my mind recalled, well, I, I had just moved to Iowa to start my formal training, graduate schooling, seminary, and I was appointed to a student charge, three small country churches. My second week there, I received the call and had the chance to do my first funeral. Carl Hardesty had died. I drove out to a beautiful farm on a curve with a row of gorgeous oak trees lining the driveway. They had been there for several generations and were absolutely beautiful. Hazel Hardesty had become a widow one morning when Carl went out to check on the cattle and had a heart attack. He was only 67 and he had big plans. He had done well in the preceding years and Carl had bought out several flat broke neighboring farmers. Just the summer before, Carl had put up three brand new butler storage bins for all of the field corn he was expecting to harvest. Hazel told me Carl was always improving things, always getting ready to add a few acres, always planning to lease a bigger combine, always planning to drain a wet spot that wasn't yielding what it should. Carl was a very good farmer, an unusually lucky farmer. Carl's plan had been to sell the farm to some agribusiness and move to Florida when he turned 70. I got out of the car and Hazel came out and met me and there was a rush of tears and then she caught her breath. She dried her eyes and she said, he always had a plan for everything. And then she hiccuped a little bit of a laugh and she added, but not for this. She said they had been to Florida and she thought it was too hot and even flatter than Iowa. She never really wanted to move to Florida, but you know, Carl had plans. She said she shed some more tears as we talked and she asked me, 
whether she should still plan to move to Florida or stay on the farm. I told her maybe she should hold off making important decisions like that for a while. Thursday night of that week, I was struck down with the flu, the shakes, had a headache and a sore throat, and worse, every preacher's dread, laryngitis. By noon on Friday, I was only able to croak single syllables like Vicks, which meant that there was only one thing to do, unfortunately, which was to call in the only spare preacher in about a 50-mile radius who would step into the pulpit on short notice, the Reverend Lex Ardent. Lex had spent his working days as a traveling evangelist on what was left of the old tent meeting preaching circuit. It's the ancestor of television ministry. I knew Lex because just a couple weeks before when we were moving into the parsonage, he showed up to greet me and offer his services, sharing that six years prior he had retired and that now he lived in town there with his son, Reg. Lex had wanted to chat, and I was kind of in a listening mood, and so I discovered that his theology had been strongly influenced by the woollier, more wild-eyed passages of the Old Testament prophets, thundering against idolatry and corruption and sins of the flesh. I also noticed that from this point in scripture, Lex's religious thinking did something of a graceless leap over the Gospels, landing clearly in the book of Revelation. His 45-year career in tent ministry evangelism meant that Lex was always on the road and forever moving from one tent meeting to the next tent meeting. Lex shared that he felt that he had, in his time, perfected his sermon, his single sermon. He also volunteered that if perchance a person should happen to hear his sermon a second time, it was because they needed to hear his sermon a second time. Lex's single sermon was about the rapture, a rather mysterious and apocalyptic belief system dating back to the 1827 writings of John Darby. Rapture thinkers say that at the second coming of Christ, only the most true, only the most faithful will be plucked live and whole from wherever they are at that unexpected moment and whisked up into heaven. And given that the doctrine of apocalypse only allows for 144,000 people being raptured, it's kind of a salvation on the grading curve. And on the rear bumper of Lex's blue Buick LeSabre, 
he had a bumper sticker that pretty much summarized his thoughts regarding his own standing. The bumper sticker read, in case of rapture, driver will disappear. That was pretty much also the point of his only sermon. In preaching, Lex verbally describes a dozen different scenarios of people gathered in various places, engaging in various activities, and all of a sudden, one, and always only one of them, suddenly and without warning, disappears. People are waiting in the line at the supermarket, and all of a sudden, the checkout girl is gone. It's the rapture. Seventh graders are sitting in social studies class and suddenly a boy from the second row vanishes. It's the rapture. People are shopping at Sears and suddenly a guy loading up a handsaw into his cart in the tool section is gone. It's the rapture. Lex was, of course, a master of his craft. He launched his sermon slowly, quietly, gradually rising into a sermonic frenzy. And then in darkened tones, sharpened over the years to a sinister edge, Lex dropped his voice and described worshipers gathered on a Sunday morning in church and only one of them is raptured. And he is quite clear that the one who disappeared was a true believer and not the preacher. It is, of course, a sermon designed and honed to scare the bejabbers out of anyone who hears it most of whom, on brief self-evaluation, would count themselves among those left behind, as Lex names them. When Lex preached this sermon in my stead on this particular Sunday, I, I was there. I was still too mute to preach, but I was not sick enough anymore to stay home in bed. And I will confess, I was sort of interested in hearing Lex who was, on that particular Sunday, in quite fine form. Even though it was the middle of summer, Lex was wearing his suit, because Lex had told me that first day on my front steps, real preachers wear suits. Of course, he has no need for notes anymore after all of these years. As he preaches, he wanders away from the pulpit around the front of the church, waving his hands and pointing theatrically at the direction of the ceiling. Lex worked the sermon slowly toward his great crescendo, painting pictures of lukewarm, Sunday-only Christians with disappointed looks on their faces as they watched the few but true believers disappear in the rapture. After 25 minutes of this, Lex ended his sermon by dropping his hands to his side, closing his eyes, and pretty much shouting, thank God, thank God, thank God, it is not too late 
for anyone in this room. He then walked over to the preacher's chair behind the pulpit and dropped himself down. He, he looked exhausted. He was drenched. He pulled a handkerchief from his inside suit pocket and began mopping his brow. And then he closed his eyes and rolled his head back and stretched out his legs in front of him. His tongue kind of wagged to the side of his mouth as he looked like he was trying to catch his breath. And then I couldn't tell if he was breathing. And I wondered if he had died. And I actually thought about going up and checking him for a pulse. As Irene, the pianist, started to play the closing hymn, Lex righted his head and struggled to his feet, pushing himself up into standing. His eyes were still half-closed in that mix of sermonic high and exhaustion. He had insisted on choosing the closing hymn, and he chose one that was not a familiar tune for us, Come Lord and Tarry Not. So most of the sound that was coming out of anyone was coming from the direction of the choir. Eight women and one man. They were in the process of trying to sing the hymn while recessing out of the sanctuary it was a small church, a sanctuary over a basement, really. If they were to exit back out the center aisle, they would have found themselves going out the front doors of the church into 95-degree sunshine. That was because it was summertime, and the winter was a whole lot colder than that. So the way that they left the choir loft, which was up front they would leave the front of the church on the left side. They would march across the back of the chancel area behind the communion table. And they would go out the side door, down the steps, into the basement, and they, of course, would be sampling the coffee and the brownies when the rest of us got there. This is a direct and narrow path with a single hazard. There is, right behind the communion table, in the floor, a wooden heating grate. It's built of pine. It measures about 14 inches square, and it just sits there in the hole. That, and it keeps anyone from falling down there, mostly the preacher. The duct goes straight down for about 15 inches, and it makes a hard turn, a right angle, and heads off toward the furnace. Evelyn Bowers, a soprano, she was rather new to the choir. She was a small woman who gave herself another three inches of height by wearing those spiked-heeled shoes that come in and out of fashion every few years. And as she passed over the heating duct that Sunday morning, her right round heel went down deep into one of the little square holes in the wooden grate, and it lodged there firmly. The processing choir focused on singing the unfamiliar hymn from hymn books open in front of their faces as they walked. 
They slowed as Evelyn tugged to, to free her foot. Her shoe stayed on her foot and the heel did not break off. And on her third and mighty pull, Evelyn took a step forward, lifting the entire grate, which wasn't all that heavy, lifted the grate right out of the top of the duct and moved on. Trooper that she was, walking as if she'd been shot in the leg but was trying not to make a scene. Right behind her was Elsie Johnson, who was tall and thin and well, to put it kindly, Elsie had a history of not noticing her immediate environment. She, she just didn't notice things. She was an outstanding vocalist, but she was focused through the bottom of her bifocals on singing the music. I turned at that moment to see if Lex had noticed Evelyn plowing forcefully along, determined to make it to the rear door as if nothing at all had happened. Lex also was focused on the music, trying to keep his eyes open, and he glanced up just as Elsie Johnson stepped right where that floor grate was not. And as she descended, Elsie gave a squealing whoop! and she dis disappeared from sight behind the communion table. As Elsie falling was, of course, unexpected, it took a moment for realization to set in for any of us. Lex, who caught it out of the corner of his eye through what I would call peripheral vision, entered a moment, uh, a few seconds of of unrealization, a, a flabbergasted gaze, his, his eyes went wide. His hymn book slipped from his hand and crashed to the floor. He had still been in the grip of his sermonic euphoria, trying not to fall asleep from exhaustion. Lex had seen out of the corner of his eye, before his very eyes, the scene that he has been putting into words for 45 years. Elsie had been taken, and Lex was left behind. It was the rapture. And this state of flabbergasted misapprehension lasted for probably five seconds. And I am sure that it was the longest five seconds in Lex's life. And then as choir members looked from their hymn books and began to turn and gather around Elsie, it took a few more seconds for the look on Lex's face to shift from horror to befuddlement to immense relief. He closed his eyes and mouthed what was surely an earnest prayer of thanksgiving that the rapture had been delayed. There was still hope for Lex. Elsie hadn't even fallen over, but just stepped squarely into the duct, and she'd gone down about 15 inches to where it turns horizontal. And if the communion table hadn't been there, I think it would have looked a lot like she was kneeling down to tie her shoe.
It all happened so suddenly that Elsie was certainly not clear what had happened to her. And the choir fished her out and dusted her off. She didn't even have a scratch on her. She was fine. I recalled this story and enjoyed it thoroughly again after seeing the blue Buickless saber in the wrecking yard. Refreshing again and again in my mind that mental picture of those five seconds which revealed Lex's fear all too clearly. And I hate to admit it, but, but it again became a source of great joy to me. But it also became a source for my own reflection. I realize that I have fears too and ways of coping with them no different than Lex's. I thought of Carl Hardesty who'd put up three new butler bins one day and was gone the next. I thought about Elsie vanishing into the floor behind the communion table with a whoop. I thought about all the people from those cars. And I thought about a lot of the dear people I have known through the years who have vanished just as suddenly from my sight. I tell you all of this about death coming and our fear of it. I tell you about Elsie disappearing through the floor. I tell you about a preacher who was scared to death that he had been left behind to get at our fear. For that is the last word in this gospel, the final word on the meaning of Easter in the gospel of Mark is afraid. After finding the empty tomb and an angelic appearance, Mark says, So the women went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The End the other Gospel writers, Matthew, Luke, and John, all end the story of the resurrection by going on to include stories of appearances, of warm reunions, times of joy and reconciliation. Mark doesn't have any of that. He says even though the women were instructed to go and to tell, they did not because they were afraid. Maybe Mark wants us to think about the good news at Easter as not only joyful and majestic and glorious and comforting, but also something of which we don't quite have words. Something of which we might be afraid. We all have our various ways for dealing with death, however it comes, and our fear of death. I think the fear of these women were feeling 
was deeper than that. If Jesus, the one knocked off by religious leaders exploiting governmental procedures, if this Jesus was now raised from the dead by the word of God spoken by God, then the women knew, they knew that everything in the world had been turned upside down and nothing would ever be the same. They knew that as deep as their fear of death had been, they were encountering something even deeper. Jesus was raised, which means that God has the final word. For Carl Hardesty, for Lex Ardent, for all the people from those automobiles in the wrecking yard, for all of those people near and dear to us who have slipped away, for all of us. That's what the women discovered in an empty tomb, what they thought was the end of the story was not. The final word of our story belongs to God. And I don't know how any of us can possibly not be changed by that. Happy Easter. <laughs>